You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. As you have a copy of his word, would you turn to Mark chapter 12? Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 27 today. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question. And I want, this to, I want your answer to be like the very first answer that comes into your mind. Don't think about it too hard. But I'm going to ask you this question as you're turning there. What is something that is exciting coming to you right now in your near future that you are just excited about, that you are anticipating? First thought that comes into your mind. No overthinking it. What's the first thought? What are you waiting for right now that you just can't wait for it to come? Star Wars. Star Wars? What was that? Getting married, that's a good one, yeah. New grandchild. New grandchild. Oh, awesome. Good. Okay, so as you're, as you're thinking of those first thoughts, maybe some of us, you know, if, you know, we're working hard during the week. Maybe some of the stuff that we're really looking forward to might be, you know, the weekend, right? Everybody's working for the weekend. We get excited about those things. Maybe it's a coming birthday. Maybe it's an anniversary. Maybe it's a coming wedding. Maybe it's Christmas. Anybody excited for Christmas? We got a lot of Christmas nuts already. We already have a tree up in our house. Maybe it's a vacation. A lot of us live for those vacations, right? Maybe it's the, the coming arrival of a child or a grandchild or the visit of a loved one. Those things get us excited. Those things kind of get us through even a long week at times. Things that we look forward to get us through a long, dark winter, and maybe they even help get us through pain and suffering at times. What motivates our heart? What motivates your feet for the days ahead? What's the greatest thing you're anticipating right now? Now, now, as, now as I've asked you not to put too much thought into this, let me also ask you this. Is one of your very first thoughts your coming resurrection? Is your coming resurrection from the dead one of the most ongoing, anticipated thoughts in your life? Does it motivate your heart? Does it cause you to persevere to the end, through the dark days, through the cold winters, through the pain, through the suffering? How much of your thoughts and joys right now, today, are being fueled by that great day that is to come of your resurrection and your glorification to everlasting life with Christ? You know, when that trumpet blows and Christ returns and he raises you from the grave unto everlasting life, is this your greatest source of joy? And are you anticipating it with great, great joy? Or is the resurrection just one of those mysterious realities of the Bible? You know, the Bible talks about this resurrection. Maybe it's something you're not sure about. Not something you think about on a regular basis, right? Maybe you have questions about the resurrection, your resurrection. Maybe you're struggling to believe in all of this idea of a resurrection. Well, in our text today, as we're walking through Mark, we're going to see Jesus approached with another impossible question, it seems. 
He's going to be answering the question, uh, a skeptical question about the resurrection. And what we're going to see is that Jesus believes it. Jesus teaches it. His word reveals it. And his people need to be longing for it. We need to be longing for it with anticipating joy. So let's pray, and then we're going to go to the text. Lord, we need your help here this morning. By your Spirit, would you illuminate the Word to us? Would you shine it into our minds and into our hearts so that we can comprehend it, understand it, that you would apply it as wisdom deeply into our hearts, and that you would cause change in us all for your glory? Lord, we trust you. We know that your Spirit is among us and that your Spirit is strong. We thank you, Lord, that you have come to tabernacle within us. You've come to live within your people, and you've given us your holy word to show us the way. Lord, thank you for the lamp of the word shining forward into the path of our darkness. Lord, as we continue to walk in this fallen world, we need to hear more about the resurrection. We need to comprehend it. We need to understand it. We need to have great joy anticipating it. And only you can do that in our hearts. And we trust you by your word, by your spirit, to do that for us this morning. We pray this in the name of mighty King Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, That if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus believes in the resurrection. Jesus teaches the resurrection. His word reveals the resurrection, and his people, us, need to be longing for it with anticipating joy. As we look at this text closer, we're we're also going to see three ways that we need to apply this into our own lives, to apply this to our own skeptical hearts, our own longings, as we are so prone to anticipating all kinds of other things. And so as we pick up where we left off last week, if you remember... The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were sent by the Sanhedrin council of the temple and they were trying to trap Jesus. They came to him last week with another impossible question about paying taxes to Caesar. But instead of falling into their trap, Jesus shocks them all, right, by answering, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God's. 
And then the text says, they marveled at him. They were amazed at him because it wasn't the answer that the Pharisees and the Herodians were expecting. Their attempt to trap Jesus failed. And so we come to our text today. We see that they need to try again. They need to try something else. They need another angle. They need another group. Another group of people who thought they had the most puzzling question, that they had the clincher, right? They had that zinger question that was going to cause Jesus to stumble and so that they could finally take him down. And what we're going to first learn through this interaction with the Sadducees, with Jesus, is that when it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to our resurrection, to glorification, and even heaven, we need to stop imposing. We need to stop imposing. Eternal trumps temporary. Verse 18, the Sadducees came to him who say, who say there's no resurrection. So let's first take a look at who these guys are. Who are these Sadducees? In the whole Gospel of Mark, we haven't heard about them yet. And this is, in fact, the only encounter in the book of Mark where Jesus uh, is encountering the, the Sadducees. So who are they? How are they different than the rest? And why do they say that there is no resurrection? Well, when it came to Jewish life back then in the first century, there were many different groups or parties of leaders uh, but the two that had the most influence over the people were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both of these parties came into existence at the same time. It was uh, in 2nd century B.C. during the, the Maccabean Revolt. You can go study some church history and, and check that out. It's really, really interesting. But they came about in the 2nd century B.C., but they were very different from one another, especially when it came to spiritual things. To start off with, their view of God's word, their view of the Bible was very different from one another. The Pharisees, who were questioning Jesus last week, the Pharisees, they believed the whole Old Testament. That's the law, the writings, and the prophets. But the Sadducees only believed in the law. They only believed in the first five books that were written by Moses. And then another big difference is this, is that the Pharisees from last week... They believed in angels. They believed in the existence of angels, believed in the existence of demons, believed in the spiritual realm. But the Sadducees denied all of this. They denied that they even existed. The Pharisees, believing in a coming resurrection of the dead, they, because they believed in the spiritual realm, and because they believed in the whole Old Testament, they believed in a coming resurrection of the dead. But as we just read in this text, the Sadducees did not. They don't believe in it. We also see this later confirmed by the Apostle Paul in Acts 23.8, where he says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So if you want to remember who the Sadducees are, there are those guys that didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They denied the supernatural. So basically, what they believed is, is what's here is here. They were naturalists. 
They were somewhat religious in practice, but yet they were very, very secular, very naturalistic in their worldview. But they were powerful over the people, and they were respected. And so we see these resurrection-denying Sadducees approaching Jesus in verse 19, and they pose this hypothetical question. And like the Pharisees, they're hopeful, they're sure that they've got Jesus in a corner now. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, again, we see flattery just like the Pharisees, calling him rabbi, respect. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And then here comes the zinger. This is their hope. They're, they're banking it all on this. They say, in the resurrection, that they know Jesus believes, in the resurrection, which the Sadducees don't believe in, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So it seems here that the Sadducees, of course, they know that the Pharisees believe in this. And they, 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 they know that Jesus here is believing in the resurrection from the dead. They may have also heard the rumors that Jesus has been telling his disciples that he is going to be arrested, he is going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, and then he's going to rise from the grave. He may have heard that going around. And so they go after that which they fiercely deny themselves, and they pose this crazy marriage question, trying to shoot holes in his doctrine of resurrection. They, they really believe they've got him. So notice that they refer to God's word, but they only refer to the word that Moses wrote. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us. They only believed in Moses' writings. And then they go on to pose this ridiculous question about childless, a childless woman who loses seven husbands, then she dies, and then they say when, they rise, when she rises again, when they rise again, all of them, in this supposed resurrection that you believe, Jesus, whose wife is she going to be? For the seven had her as a wife. They're basically asking, if, if you believe in this resurrection, Jesus, will she have seven husbands or will she have one? Who gets her? Now the scripture they're building off this, the case that they're trying to build is, is found in, surprise, Deuteronomy. One of Moses' books where Moses is giving the laws of Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the question they're asking is correct in the sense that Moses had this law that obligated a brother-in-law to marry his sister-in-law if her husband dies. You know, at this time in Jewish history, God was protecting and preserving his chosen people. 
He was ensuring that bloodlines and inheritance would not be lost among the Gentiles. This command was for for the people to, to marry each other, but not to intermix with the Gentile people and go after other gods. God was a God of of promise, and he was making sure that the promise was being extended to his chosen people. And so this is where they're sourcing it from. So in the minds of of the Sadducees, the, the reality of remarriage was creating a real problem when it comes to the concept of resurrection. If a, woman, if a woman loses seven husbands, who's going to be her husband in heaven? Let me ask you, who is going to be her husband in heaven? How would you answer that? How would you answer the Sadducees? Would it be the last husband? Would it be the first husband? Would it be all seven? What's puzzling as this is, even for us, even for the average Pharisee to answer this, there's no match for Jesus Christ. He tears apart their logic piece by piece. Verse 24, he says to them, and I love this, is this not the reason you are wrong? I love that. Confronting false doctrine. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Friends, in Christ's response, we see three ways that these Pharisees are wrong. They are wrong about the resurrection. And the first way that we see that they are wrong is in the fact that they are imposing earthly institutions onto eternal realities. They're making a false assumption that marriage continues into the resurrection. But Jesus says, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. You see, the whole premise of their question rested on their assumption that marriage continues after you die. But Jesus says clearly here, nobody's getting married. And nobody is given to marriage in heaven. They are like angels. Angels aren't like people. They don't marry. And they're not going to get married. If you remember back to our sermon on divorce a while back, we, we talked about how marriage is this temporary reality pointing us to a greater heavenly reality. That as awesome as marriage is, marriage isn't really about us, right? Marriage was given to us to teach us about God. It was given to us to teach us about the gospel. That there is a coming bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to do what? To save his bride from her transgressions. That's what marriage is about. We love marriage, but it's not really about us. It's not ultimately about us. In many ways, marriage is a living parable. It's pointing us to Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus comes back, the purpose of marriage is over. The bride is coming back to get his bride. The marriage is going to be consummated. There's going to be a marriage supper. And so the point of earthly marriage 
has been fulfilled. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven who don't marry. And this completely blows up the Sadducees' question. Because their assumptions have failed them, you see, the only marriage that is going to be in heaven is the marriage between the bride, the church, and Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. That's the eternal marriage. And so this question about whose husband is whose is ludicrous. Now on a side note, how many people are really sad about that? Right now, in our, in our, in our earthly thinking, we would tend to be very sad about that. How can I even think about that? Like, I'm not going to be married in heaven. Or maybe some might be, well, 50 years was enough, right? So as much as we think this is strange, or we don't like it, you need to trust me, when you are in the presence of Jesus Christ, when you're in the presence of our, our bridegroom, when you're at the wedding supper of the Lamb, you're not going to think that this is strange. You're not going to have a problem with this. You're not going to oppose this idea at all because you're going to fully understand it. You're going to fully accept it. How the perfect, fulfilled purpose of my marriage, of your marriage, is pointing to Jesus Christ all along. It was the gospel. And so we see Jesus here tearing apart, tearing apart their faulty assumptions, exposing their error that they are imposing temporary realities onto eternal realities. And so we need to ask ourselves the same question. Are there ways that we may be imposing earthly, earthly things onto heavenly things? What are we imposing on heaven right now that may be wrong? Do I see heaven merely as an extension of all of the good things here? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Again, without much uh, thinking, what's the version of heaven in your mind right now? Do you think it's the right version? Do you think we all have the same version going on in our heads right now? Whose version is right? Is your heaven going to be an eternal bliss floating on a cloud, playing a harp? Is it going to be eternal peace on the golf course where your handicap is just perfect? You get nothing but holes in one. Right, Dan? Holes in ones all the way. Is it a place with never-ending brownies and ice cream and treats? Is it a place where you can eat all that stuff and you never gain weight? Is it eternal passes to Disneyland? Is it never-ending Hallmark Christmas movies? And some of the guys are like, no, I think that's the other place. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, what kind of earthly things are we imposing on God's perfect heaven design? One commentator writes this, the resurrected life is not a prolonged earthly life, but life in an entirely new dimension. Earthly conditions and conventions must yield to the heavenly. So as great as, as eternal marriage sounds, it doesn't fit within the heavenly realm. 
because it's completed its purpose. Jesus is showing us that we need to be careful to understand our resurrection rightly. We need to stop imposing because the eternal always trumps the temporary. So the Sadducees had it all wrong. But why? Why do they have it all wrong? Why, according to Jesus, do they have it all wrong? Verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Friends, when it comes to the resurrection, we need to stop imposing, yes, but we also need to start informing. We need to start informing ourselves. Revelation always overcomes reason. The reason the Sadducees had such a narrow, faulty understanding of the resurrection and angels of the spiritual realm is because they had a faulty view of Scripture. They didn't know it. They didn't embrace it. You know, even though the Pharisees had their massive legalistic issues, the Pharisees knew God's word. They believed the law, they believed the writings, they believed the prophets, the Bible that was available at that time in its completeness. So they believed in angels, they believed in miracles, they believed in the supernatural, they believed in the coming resurrection. But the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't believe in God's word. If they really knew God's word in all of its completeness, they'd know the power of God and they'd have no problem with the coming resurrection. The Old Testament that they had access to back then, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, was full, full of illusions, full of prophecy pointing forward to a coming resurrection. Here's a few of them. Think of Job amidst his horrible sufferings. Job 19, 25 to 27. In the midst of all of that that he's going through, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another my heart faints within me. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's believing in, in a resurrection, that it doesn't end in death. He believed that after death he's going to see his Redeemer, we also know in Daniel's visions of the last days, Daniel 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, those who have died, shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, raised up to life, raised up to death. This is prophecy of a coming resurrection for everyone. Some written in the Lamb's Book of Life to be with Christ. Some who will go for forever punishment for sin. The prophet Ezekiel that we read this morning was talking about a dry valley of bones coming to life. That God is going to put flesh and sinew on those bones. That they are going to come to life. God is put, going to put a spirit into them. 
And then back to that verse 12 from this morning's scripture reading, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, not just the temporary land of Israel, but the eternal land of Israel, heaven, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. The Sadducees were ignorant of these scriptures. They didn't accept them as the word of God. Therefore, they did not know his power. And they believed only in the now, only in the temporary, only in the material world. And they believed that way, even when others like the Pharisees believed differently. Even the common Jew at that time believed in the resurrection. We see this in the death of Lazarus. As Jesus comes to Martha and is consoling her over the death of Lazarus, Jesus says to her in John 11, verse 23 to 24, your brother will rise again. Listen to what Martha says. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus is speaking, he's going to raise him from the dead here right away, but Martha has her faith in the coming resurrection. On the last day. This book is so full of testimony about a coming day. The day that a trumpet will sound when when Jesus will return. He's going to reunite our spirit with our bodies. And he's going to raise us up into glory. But you can't know it fully unless you know his word. When it comes to the resurrection, we need to start informing Because revelation overcomes reason. You see, the Sadducees' worldly reasoning is leading them away from the eternal reality, the eternal truth, leading them into grave error. They knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And so we ask ourselves, when it comes to our faith, our hope, our perspective on eternity, what are we banking it all on? What What are we believing in? How are we forming our opinion? Is it founded upon God's word? Maybe you're a skeptic here this morning and and you try to answer these questions of God's power and purpose as just, yeah, that's just a book written by men. Somebody somebody made that up. We know that God's word is powerful and his spirit uses it to illuminate it to our hearts. And so my my, my commendation, not condemnation, my commendation to you is to study what God's book has to say. Study what God's book has to say about the resurrection. Study it for what it has to say about anything. The resurrection is here. It's undeniable. But even more than that, we need to be studying God's word about anything we need to know. Study God's word for for what it has to say about anything that we need answers for in this life and the life to come because it's all here and it's all sufficient and it's all true. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Before you ever settle an opinion about anything, you need to check it against God's word. If you're ever trying to form a thought or an opinion, we need to go to the one who's higher than us. 
the one who created it all, the one who spoke and it all came into being, the one who created you, the one who knows the beginning from the end. When we don't do this, we will fall into fatal error like the Sadducees. James Montgomery Boyce said, some persons think they can know God by means of their own human reason. But reason is a blind ally spiritually. It has always been the great minds exercising their powers apart from the word of God who have produced the great heresies. Friends, revelation always overcomes reason. So when it comes to the resurrection, the focus on today's text, let's stop imposing the temporary onto the eternal, and let's start informing ourselves by God's word. And then thirdly, let's live intently. Let's live intently. Resurrection empowers perseverance. So as Jesus firmly rebukes the Sadducees. He says, you are wrong. Why? You don't know the word of God, therefore you don't know the power of God. You're wrong. And then he points them back to the writings of Moses, the writings that they, that they hold to. And he says, verse 26, as for the dead being raised, as for the resurrection, have you not read the book of Moses? This book that they hold to, that they, that they would hold to and love. Have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, right? This is, this is the story of, of Moses, you know, the burning bush story. God is revealing himself to Moses as, as the I am in Exodus 3. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then he hammers his point home. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Friends, the Sadducees had it all wrong. Jesus tells them again, you have it all wrong. And he goes after them with the very revelation that they claim to love and know, the writings of Moses. The very revelation they believe When the Sadducees studied the first five books of the Bible, they believed there is no sign of resurrection or or the spiritual realm. I don't know how they can do that, but they did. Jesus confronts them. Have you not read the book of Moses? Of course they had. That's That's how they started their question. Have you not read the book of Moses? That when God was speaking to Moses from this burning bush, right, this this revelation that he's giving to Moses about himself, giving Moses his name, I am. Then he goes on to say, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. This isn't just a, a passing reference to dead people. What Jesus is saying is what God is saying in this moment when he's speaking to Moses is that these people, these patriarchs that he's talking about are not dead. They are alive. Yes, they died physically in their time, but these pillars of the faith are still alive today, though their bodies are dead. 
They're alive today, and they are awaiting the resurrection. Jesus is connecting the resurrection to God's conversation with Moses. The saints of the Old Testament, the patriarchs. In fact, the book of Hebrews 11, I would commend that to you this week to go and study Hebrews 11. It tells us that these men and these women of the faith, they died in faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that they were desiring a better country, that is, a heavenly one. You see, the Sadducees believed that once you were dead, you ceased to exist. But Jesus is telling them that God is not the God of dead people. God is a God of the living. And the living are awaiting the resurrection right now. That means everybody who has died in faith in Christ to come, in Christ who has come, are awaiting their resurrection. In the second century, Christian scholar Origen of Alexandria says this, It is ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. Therefore, because God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be living, and thus the resurrection is a reality. Right from the books that they held to. Our God is a God of promise and a God of relationship. When he powerfully chooses to save someone from their sin and to have a relationship with them, his powerful promise knows no end. His promises don't stop at death. His promises are eternal. What Jesus is saying is that the souls of these pillars of the faith are still alive and they are anticipating that final day when Christ comes in power to reunite our souls with our bodies and raise us up into everlasting glory. That's the promise for all of his people. He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. The Sadducees knew not the power of God. This same powerful resurrection for Abraham, for Isaac, for for Jacob, this everlasting life promise that was promised to our forefathers is promised to us as well. And it has been sealed and it has been confirmed perfectly in the resurrection of our Savior himself. You know, Jesus already said to his disciples three times, right, that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be killed. But it doesn't stop there, right? He's going to rise from the grave. He's going to rise from the grave. Jesus is speaking here just a couple days before he is hung on a cross and he dies. But then that coming Sunday, he's going to rise from the grave. It's sealed, it's confirmed, because our Savior is alive, he is not dead. You know, as we turn to the final pages of the book of Mark, we know that is so. Chapter 16, remember the stone is is rolled in front of Christ's tomb and it is sealed and Roman soldiers are put out front. But on the day of his resurrection, Mark 16, 6, we see women going to the grave. And there's an angel there. And he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. 
He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Our Savior is a risen Savior. Yes, Jesus came to die for our sin, but even more than that, he is the first one to rise from the grave. He is the first person to be resurrected from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by, by Adam and by us came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, by Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And in light of this powerful truth, we need to live accordingly, live intently, live expectingly, live anticipating. The promise of the resurrection empowers our perseverance. Friends, as good as life is here, we live in a fallen universe because of the first sin, because of our sin. Death and pain and disease and brokenness have come into this world. Each one of us, in our own ways, is experiencing some of that to some extent, some more than others. God's Word says in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, when you look out on this beautiful planet, this beautiful universe, we do also see that it's troubled. We see that it's broken. We look at all the pain, we look at the turmoil, we look at the suffering, we look at the abuse, we look at the disease, we look at the death, we look at all the confusion. Our universe is groaning, groaning in pain under the weight of the effects of sin. Even us who have the first fruits, we experience these things as Christians. We still experience the fallout of our sin, and we groan inwardly. But the truth here is that we need to be waiting eagerly. Wait eagerly, intently, expectantly, longing for the full and final redemption of our bodies. As I think about this, I think about how recently just our brothers and sisters are suffering right here in our church, even just... This last week, people experiencing anxieties and pain from living in our bodies. These bodies that are failing us. These bodies that are breaking down. These bodies that are aging and growing tired and weary. We experience relationships that are failing us. Loved ones who are leaving us far too soon. Thoughts that are betraying us. Fears that are immobilizing us. Brokenness is all around us. but there's a coming day. And that day is coming soon. It is coming soon. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, just like that, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When you're raised up on that last day, you're going to be raised up into an imperishable body. Indestructible. Unfailing. Perfect body. You're going to be changed, finally, into that perfect image of God that you were created to be. You're going to be glorified. You're going to be complete and perfect. There's going to be no more, no more sorrow. There's going to be no more suffering. There's going to be no more sickness, no more pain, no more brokenness, no more weakness, no more temptation, no more sin, no more shame, no more separation. We're going to be raised to our ultimate selves. Perfect, glorious, Reflection of Jesus Christ. No more blindness, no more deafness, no more muteness, no more cancer, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more fear, no more trials, no more destruction, no more demons, no more Satan. Who's excited for that day? But even more than all of that, even more than all of that, even more than how great it's going to be that I'm going to have an arm, another arm that I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I will. Even more than all of that, what's the most amazing joy we're going to experience? Yes, getting that resurrected body, all of those things. The most amazing and powerful joy that we're going to experience is being raised up into the very personable, very tangible, very everlasting presence of Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to see him as he is. We're going to see him in all of his full splendor and glory. We're going to finally be with our God, and God is going to be God to his people. His very presence is going to be with us forever and ever and ever. Sin will no longer separate us from him. We're going to see him as he is in all of his glory, in all of his power, in all of his splendor, in all of his love and grace towards us forever and ever and ever and ever in perfect, holy, eternal communion. Perfect worship. All this fulfillment and this everlasting joy that is going to be found in our Savior. Isn't he good? Isn't our God so good? I can't wait for that day. So how eagerly are you waiting for that day? Is this your greatest longing? Does that motivate you to keep on going right now? Does that cause you to persevere to the end amidst all the challenges, amidst all the sufferings of this world? How about when it comes to our mission in life? The Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, right here and across the world. How does that motivate us towards that? Are we living intently? 
Are we living expectantly? Are we living in anticipation of this day? The Sadducees didn't get it. Jesus rebuked them for it. Maybe today we need a bit of a a rebuke. Maybe we need to get our eyes off of our stuff, off of the things here. As I asked you to, to come, you know, what's that first thought of that thing, that great thing that you're anticipating? Those are good things, right? But they're not the ultimate thing. And we can be so focused on all of those things that we don't have our eyes on the final thing, on the best thing, on Jesus Christ, us being raised into glory with him forever. This should set our hearts towards worship. This should produce such a desire for holiness in our lives. And this should motivate our, our voices and our, and our feet to be making disciples here and across our world. And so as we are motivated by grace, as we are informed by God's word, as we are empowered by his spirit, as we are in awe of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior, let's begin turning our eyes off of ourselves, taking our eyes off of our stuff, taking our eyes off of the world, and getting our eyes on the Lord, the Lord of glory. He is not God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Amen? When it comes to the resurrection, stop imposing the eternal trumps the temporary. Start informing. Revelation overcomes reason and live intently. Resurrection empowers perseverance. Let's pray. Lord, we, at this very moment, we acknowledge and confess that we, we think about the resurrection and it baffles us. It seems mysterious, it seems so far off, but yet you tell us it's so near and you're coming back. And Lord, we confess before you this morning that we're often not living in light of, your resurrection, of our resurrection to come, your return. Lord, there's so many temptations and distractions in this world. And yes, you have given them to us for our good, for us to enjoy, but yet they're so tempting to make those things our idols, to make those things our God to keep us off, our eyes off the prize. Lord, thank you for showing us in your word that the Sadducees were wrong. And we are wrong when we impose our own thoughts on heaven, our own thoughts on the resurrection. Thank you for reminding us that we need to be informed by your word, not by our reason. And we thank you, Lord, that you're calling us to live an intentful, intentional, anticipating life anticipating our resurrection to come, the greatest thing we could even comprehend. Lord, we love you. Thank you for showing us this. By your word, by your spirit, please do your work in us as we continue to walk together as the saints in Christ, this church here in South Calgary and beyond. We pray this in Christ's name.